Chapter 13 of The Witch of Salem. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Witch of Salem by John R. Music. Chapter 13 Credulity Run Mad. The Weird Sisters, Hand in Hand. Posters of the sea and land, thus do go about, about, thrice to thine, and thrice to mine, and thrice again to make up nine. Shakespeare. Charles Stevens was detained in New York until early 1692. First he became involved in trouble through his sympathy with the unfortunate Leisler family, and was thrown into prison but a few days later he was released on bond. Then he lingered, awaiting his trial, but the case was finally dismissed, and then he joined an expedition against the Indians on the frontier. He wrote home regularly, and never failed to mention Cora in his letter. All the while, Charles was at a loss to decide whether it was Cora or Adelpha who had won his affections. Adelpha's great misfortune and grief only seemed to endear her to him, for the noblest hearts grow more tender with sorrow. Early in 1692 he returned to Salem after an absence of ten months. Great changes were soon to come about. Salem was about to enter upon that career of madness known in history as Salem Witchcraft. There are few portions of ancient or modern history which exhibit stranger or more tragical and affecting scenes than that known as Salem witchcraft. And few matters of authentic history remain so deeply shrouded in mystery at the present day. The delusion has never been satisfactorily explained, and time seems to obscure rather than throw light upon the subject. At this period, the belief in witchcraft was general throughout Christendom, as is evidenced by the existence of laws for the punishment of witches and sorcerers in almost every kingdom, state, province, and colony. Persons suspected of being witches or wizards were tried, condemned, and put to death by the authority of the most enlightened tribunals in Europe. Only a few years before the occurrences in New England, Sir Matthew Hale, a judge highly and justly renowned for the strength of his understanding, the variety of his knowledge and the eminent Christian graces which adorned his character, had, after long and anxious investigation, adjudged a number of men and women to die for this offense. Only a few rare minds, such as Charles Stevens, living far in advance of the age, were skeptical on the subject of witchcraft. These bold spirits placed themselves in great danger of being cried out upon as witches themselves. This delusion had its fountainhead in Salem, but it was by no means confined to this locality. It spread all over the American colonies, and like most superstitions, hovered along the frontier, where it was fostered in the shadow of ignorance and grew in the dark halls of superstition. The author will not deny that there are many to this day who attribute what they do not, in the light of reason, understand to supernatural agencies. In Virginia, in Ohio, Kentucky, 
Illinois and Missouri there existed in their early days strange stories of witchcraft. If the butter did not form from milk, some witch was in the churn. If the cattle died of an epidemic or a disease unknown to the poor science of the day, it was the result of witchcraft. If a child or grown person was afflicted with some strange disease, such as epilepsy, the jerks, St. Vitus dance, rickets, or other strange nervous complaints which they could not understand, they at once attributed to witchcraft. There sprang up a class of people called witch-doctors who, it was claimed, had power to dispel the charm and bring the witch to grief. The only way a witch could relieve herself and re-establish her power was to go to the house of the person bewitched and borrow something. As in those early days, all articles of domestic use were scarce and neighbors depended on borrowing, many an old lady was amazed to find herself refused and wholly unable to account for the sudden coolness of persons whom she had always loved. Mr. Paris, the fanatic, fraud, and schemer, perhaps did more to augment witchcraft than any other person in the colonies. Paris was ambitious. The circle of young girls, as the reader will remember, first held their seances at his home. Their young nervous systems were so wrought upon that at their age in life they were thrown into spasms resembling epileptic fits. Instead of treating their disease scientifically, as such cases would be treated at present, the parson foolishly declared that they were bewitched. Those children could not have been wholly impostors. They were deceived by the preachers and the zealous, bloodthirsty bigots into actually believing some of the statements they uttered. Their nerves were shattered, their imaginations wrought upon, until they took almost any shape capricious fancy or the evil-minded parrots would dictate. When Charles Stevens arrived in Salem, instead of finding the dread superstition a thing of the past to be forgotten or remembered only with a sense of shuddering shame, he found that the flame had been fanned to a conflagration. Mr. Paris and Mr. Noyes contrived to preach from their pulpits sermon on protean devils and monsters of the air, until the more credulous of their congregations were almost driven to insanity. One evening, as Paris was passing the home of Goody Vance, she met him at the door, and, with a face blanched with fear and annoyance, said, Mr. Paris, I am grievously annoyed with a witch in my churn. What does she do? he asked. She prevents the butter from forming, and I have churned until my arms seem as if they would drop off. The parson's face grew grave, and, going to a certain tree, he broke some switches from it and entered the house. Take the milk from the churn, he said, pour it into a skillet, and place the skillet on the coals before the fire. This was done, and the astounded housewife, with her numerous children, stood gazing at the pastor, who, with his white, cadaverous face, thin lips, and hooked nose, looked as if he might have power over the spirits of darkness. He drew a chair up before the fire, and, seating himself, began whipping the milk, saying, I do this in the name of the Lord, which he repeated with every stroke. Goody Nurse, who was on the best of terms with Goody Vance, 
had unfortunately broken the spindle of her wheel, and knowing that her neighbor had an extra one, came to borrow it. She was astonished to see the pastor seated before a skillet of milk, whipping it with switches. No sooner was her errand made known than Paris, leaping to his feet, cried, No, no, lend her nothing, or you will break the spell. Avant, vile witch, or I will scourge you until your shoulders are bare and bleeding. Goody Nurse, astonished and terrified, retired, and next Lord's Day the incident formed a theme for Mr. Paris's sermon. This was the first sermon Charles had heard since his return. Mother, I will go no more to hear Mr. Paris, Charles declared on reaching home. You must, my son. The laws of the colony compel the attendance on divine worship. Such laws should be repealed as foolish. Compel one to go to church, to listen to such nonsense. And Charles hurried away in disgust. Cora had been watching him during his conversation with his mother. He had scarcely been able to speak with her at all since his return. Charles turned toward her as he ceased speaking, and Cora, seeming to dread meeting his eyes, was about to disappear into her room when he called her. Cora, don't go away. I must talk with you. What would you say, she asked, her heart fluttering in her bosom like a captive bird. There is so much. Let us go down to the brook and sit on the green banks as we used to do. She trembled, hesitated a moment, and acquiesced. They went slowly down the path, neither saying a word until the brook was reached. When they were seated on the bank, Charles asked, Cora, are you still persecuted by Mr. Paris? Does he continue to denounce you? He does. That is evidence that he is a man of low qualities. And he still assails Goody Nurse? Yes, sir. Goody Nurse, Goody Cora, Bishop, and Casty have all been cried out upon, and it is not known when they will stop. This craze has assumed dangerous proportions, Cora. It has. They are going to law, she answered. Some are already in jail. I have heard of it, and, with prejudiced judges and juries and false witnesses, life will be in great peril. I know it. Then Charles went silent for a moment, listening to the song of a bird in its leafy bower. When the feathered songster had warbled forth his lay, and flown to a distant tree, on which to try its notes, Charles asked, "'Have you seen your father recently?' "'He was here two months ago.' "'Did he want to take you away with him?' "'He did, but I could not go. I promised to remain until you return.' "'Cora, may it not be dangerous so far on the frontier?' "'There is danger, but he has secured me a home with the family of Mr. Dustin, where he thinks I will be safe.' Is your father's brother with him? He is. Did they come here together? Yes, they are inseparable. Cora, don't you think there is some mystery about those brothers which you do not understand? I know there is. Were they both players? I believe they once were. Have you told your father of the persecution of Mr. Paris? Not all. Why not? It would have done no good, and would have caused him unnecessary annoyance, she answered meekly. Just like you, Cora, always afraid of making someone trouble. 
Her eyes were on the brooklet, and filled with tears as she remembered how happy Adelpha Leisler had been when at Salem, and how heavily the hand of affliction had fallen upon her. "'Charles, were you with her when it happened?' she asked. "'I was. Did you comfort her?' "'Such poor words of comfort as one can offer on such occasions, I gave her,' he answered. "'It was so sad, and she is so good, so kind, and so noble. Did she bear up well under her great afflictions?' "'As well as one could.' "'Alas, the fires of afflictions are to try the faithful. God gave her strength to bear up under her trials and sufferings. Her troubles are over, Cora, and ours are but just begun. What do you mean? The cloud of superstition which is settling about us may engulf us in ruin. She made no answer. Cora was very pretty as she sat on the embankment, her eyes on the crystal stream, gliding onward like a gushing, gleesome child and he could not but declare her the most beautiful being he had ever seen. Charles Stevens was no coquette. He was not trifling with the heart or the happiness of either Cora or Adelpha, and he had never yet spoken a word of love to either. Both had won his sympathy, his esteem, and admiration. But until he had satisfied himself, which had in reality won his heart, he would make no avowal to either. Seeing that what he said was calculated to throw a shade of gloom over her, he changed the subject by saying, Let us not anticipate evil, Cora. Wait until it is upon us. Spoken like a philosopher, she answered, But Charles, if you see evil in the future, why not all go away? Where should we go? Far to the north and east. My father has found a home in the heart of a great dense forest. There man is as free as the birds of the air, and nothing can fetter thought or will. No bigoted pastor can say, You shall worship God in this fashion, but all are permitted to worship God as they choose. There are only the friendly skies, the grand old forest, and God to judge human actions, instead of narrow-minded people with false notions of religion. I cannot go, Cora. Why not? This is my home. I know no other. Over in yonder churchyard sleeps my sainted father. He won this pleasant home from the stern, unyielding wilderness, and I will not be driven from it by a set of false fanatics who accuse, or may accuse us, of impossible crimes. Charles, if my father builds us a home in the great wilderness, won't you and your mother come and visit with us until the storm cloud has blown away? I do not ask you to give up your home. I do not ask you to shrink from the defense of it. But a short sojourn abroad cannot be thought to be an abandonment. You should accept our hospitality to afford us an opportunity to repay the debt of gratitude we owe, as well as to secure your mother from an annoyance, which is growing painful. Her argument was very strong and had its weight with Charles. "'When do you expect your father?' he asked. "'Any time or no time. "'He knows not himself when he may come. "'Poor father, he hath labored arduously "'to subdue the forest and build us a home. "'We had nothing. We were slaves.' "'But slaves no longer, Cora. "'Why not? Our term has not expired.' 
King William has pardoned all the participators in Monmouth's rebellion. For a moment she was overwhelmed with joy, and clapping her hands, gazed towards heaven, murmuring, Oh, my God, I thank thee. But anon the reaction came. The pardon for participation in Monmouth's rebellion was granted, but the subsequent crime, the flight from the master and the slaying of the overseer, could not be cured by the king's pardon to the Monmouth rebels. With a gasping sob, she said, But that other, that awful thing. What, Cora? The flight, the pursuit, and the death of the overseer. Oh, Charles, we can never be safe while that hangs over us. Charles Stevens gazed upon the pretty face bathed in tears, beheld the agony which seemed to overwhelm her, and his soul went out toward the poor maid. He had little consolation to offer, but his fertile brain was not wholly barren of resources. "'Cora, do not give way to despair,' he said. "'What your father did was right and justifiable, though technically the law may take a different view. I have a relative living in Virginia, wealthy and influential. I shall write to him to procure a pardon for your father.' "'I know him, the good man Robert Stevens, who so kindly gave us a home and aided us to escape. He will do all he can for us. He is rich and powerful, and I believe he can ultimately procure a pardon for Mr. Waters. Having consoled her, they rose and returned to the house. That same evening, Charles Stevens met John Bly near the house of his mother. How have you been, John? Charles asked. This is the first time I have seen you since my return. I am as well as one can be who has been ridden twenty leagues, Bly answered. Ridden twenty leagues? cried Charles Stevens in amazement. Pray, what do you mean? I was turned into a horse last night and ridden twenty leagues during the darkness, and I am sore and almost exhausted now. Charles laughed and passed on. I verily believe that all are going mad, he thought. As he went away, he heard Bly say, Verily, if you doubt that this one Martin is a witch, fall but once in her power, and you will give ear to what I have said of her. Next day, he met John Kimball, a woodman. Kimball had his axe on his shoulder, and his face was very pale. Charles, why did you not tarry in the West? he asked. Why came you back to this land, most accursed of devils? John Kemble, have you too gone mad over this delusion of witchcraft? asked Charles. Charles, verily, you have forgotten that the scriptures say that he that hath eyes let him see, and he that hath ears let him hear. Thank God I have both eyes and ears, and I have seen and heard, though I would that I had not. What have you seen, John Kemble? Charles asked. I will tell you without delay, but I can but pause to thank God with every breath that she can no longer do me injury, seeing she is in prison and chains. Whom do you accuse? Susanna Martin. What harm has she done you? Listen, and I will tell you all that I know myself. Susanna Martin, the accused, upon a causeless disgust, did threaten me about a certain cow of mine, that she would never do me any more good, and it came to pass accordingly, for soon after the cow was found dead on the dry ground, 
without any distemper to be discerned upon her, upon which I was followed with a strange death upon more of my cattle, whereof I lost the value of thirty pounds. Perchance some disease broke out among them, suggested Charles. Nay, nay, do not forge that excuse for this creature of darkness. I have more to tell. Being desirous to furnish myself with a dog, I applied myself to buy one of this Martin, who had a female with whelps in her house. But she not letting me have my choice, I said I would supply myself at one Bezdel's, whereupon I noticed that she was greatly displeased. Having marked a puppy at Bezdel's, I met George Martin, the husband of Susanna Martin, who asked me, "'Will you not have one of my wife's puppies?' And I answered, "'No, I got one at Bezdel's, which I like better.' The same day, one Edmund Elliot, being at Martin's house, heard George Martin relate to his wife that I had been at Bezdel's and had bought a puppy, whereupon Susan Martin flew into a great rage and answered, "'If I live,' I'll give em puppies enough. Within a few days after, I was coming out of the woods when there arose a little black cloud in the northwest, and I immediately felt a force upon me, which made me not able to avoid running upon the stumps of trees that were before me, albeit I had a broad, plain cartway before me. But though I had my axe on my shoulder to endanger me in my falls, I could not forbear going out of my way to tumble over the stumps, where the trees had been cut away. When I came below the meeting-house, there appeared unto me a little thing like a puppy of darkish color, and it shot backwards and forwards between my legs. I had the courage to use all possible endeavors of cutting it with my axe, but I could not hit it. The puppy gave a jump from me, and went, as it seemed, into the ground. On going a little farther, there appeared unto me a black puppy somewhat bigger than the first, but as black as coal. Its motions were quicker than those of my axe. It flew at my belly and away, then at my throat, so over my shoulder one way, and then over my shoulder another way. My heart now began to fail me, and I thought the dog would have torn my throat out. But I recovered myself and called upon God in my distress, and naming the name of Jesus Christ, it vanished away at once. Charles Stevens tried to argue with Bly that he had had an attack of blind staggers, and that the dog was only an optical delusion, but he could in no way convince him that it was not reality, and that he was not bewitched. According to Mr. Bancroft, New England, like Canaan, had been settled by fugitives. Like the Jews, they had fled to a wilderness, like the Jews, they had looked to heaven for a light to lead them on. Like the Jews, they had heathen for their foes. And they derived their highest legislation from the Jewish code. Cotton Mather said, New England, being a country whose interests are remarkably enwrapped in ecclesiastical circumstances, ministers ought to concern themselves in politics. Cotton Mather and Mr. Paris did concern themselves in politics and the latter, being unscrupulous and ambitious, as well as fanatical, caused hundreds of unfortunate people to mourn. The circle of children who had been meeting at the house of Mr. Paris began to perform wonders. In the dull life of the country, 
The excitement of the proceedings of the circle was welcome, no doubt, and it was always on the increase. The human mind requires amusement, as the human body requires food, exercise, and rest. And when healthful and innocent amusements are denied, resort is had to the low and vicious. Mr. Paris, who preached sermons against the evils of the theater and excommunicated the child of an actor, fostered in his own house an amusement as diabolical and dangerous as has ever been known. Results of that circle were wonderful. Whatever trickery there might be, and no doubt there was plenty, whatever excitement to hysteria, whatever actual sharpening of common faculties, it is clear that there was more, and those who had given due and dispassionate attention to the process of mesmerism and its effect can have no difficulty in understanding the reports handed down on what these young creatures did and said and saw under peculiar conditions of the nervous system. When the physicians of the district could see no explanation of the ailments of the afflicted children but the evil hand, they, with one accord, came to the conclusion that their afflictions were through the agencies of Satan. Convulsions and epilepsy are among the many mysteries which medical science has not mastered to this day, and one cannot wonder that the doctors two centuries ago should declare the afflicted ones bewitched. Then came the inquiry as to who had stricken the children, and the readiest means that occurred was to ask this question of the children themselves. At first they refused to disclose any names, but there was soon an end to any such delicacy. The first prominent symptoms occurred in November 1691, and the first public examination of witches took place March 1, 1692, just before the return of Charles Stevens from New York. One among the first arrested was Sarah Good, a weak, ignorant, poor, despised woman, whose equally weak and ignorant husband had abandoned her, leaving her to the mercy of evil tongues. This ignorant woman was taken to jail, and shortly after, her child, little Dorcas, only four years old, was also arrested and imprisoned in chains on charge of witchcraft. All this met the approval of Mr. Paris, whose pale, thin face glowed with triumph as he declared, Now is the coming of the Lord and the consumption of the firebrands of hell. No wonder Charles Stevens was serious. Over twenty people were in prison on charge of witchcraft, among them an Irish woman. A Roman Catholic hated more on account of her religion than any suspicion of evil against her. She was among the first to hang. Paris, the wild-eyed fanatic, swinging his arms about, walked up and down the village, crying against the evil spirits of the air and longing to get his clutches on the vile actor who had dared enter the consecrated village of Salem. One evening, Mr. Waters returned as mysteriously as he had disappeared. His daughter was greatly rejoiced to see him, and after the joy of the first greeting was over, told of all that was transpiring and of the threats of Mr. Paris. "'You must go away,' he said. "'When?' she asked. "'On the morrow.' Charles had a short talk with Mr. Waters, and arrangements were made for the departure of Cora on the morrow. Mr. Waters retired late that night to his room. As he was in the act of undressing, he became conscious 
that a face was pressed against the window. He stood in the dark corner, where he could scarce be seen. He held a pistol in his hand until the face disappeared from the window, and, creeping to it, looked out. There stood a man in the broad glare of the moon. He had only to glance at his tall form and his ruffian features to recognize him as the brother of the overseer whom he had shot in Virginia. For ten minutes Mr. Waters did not move, but kept his eyes riveted on the man, who instinct and reason told him was an enemy. At last the man retired down the path under the hill. Mr. Waters hurriedly wrote a few lines on a scrap of paper with only the moon for his candle, and folding the letter, addressed it to his daughter and laid it on his pillow. Then he opened the window and leaped out to the ground. He followed the man under the hill, where he found him in conversation with three other men, Mr. Paris, John Bly, and Louder. He was near enough to hear what they said and catch their plans, but he did not wait to listen. As he was creeping among the bushes, a man suddenly rose before him. His dark, tawny skin, his blanket, and features indicated that he was an aborigine. He had seen the white men under the hill and told Mr. Waters that he had ten braves at hand. "'Tell them to do no one harm, Oracus,' said Mr. Waters. "'I have never harmed mankind, save in defense, and God willing, I never will. I am going away.' The Indian silently bowed and disappeared into the forest. Mr. Waters paused under a large oak tree and gazed at the house where his daughter was sleeping so peacefully. Then he went away to the great north woods. End of chapter 13 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas